On the Gospel of Jesus according to Mark in part 19, entitled, Mysterious Growth and Small Beginnings. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it will not return to you void, but it will do the intended task for which it was sent. We thank you that is true this morning. We pray that by the power of your spirit, you would give us ears to hear, hearts to understand what you have for us, and that, Lord, that we would seek to live it out however you would direct us. Speak through these words, through me, your servant, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me now to Mark chapter 4, where we will be looking at verses 26 to 34 today. Mark chapter 4 and verse 26. Now as you turn there, these two parables, which were read for us earlier, we see they are once more agriculturally based parables, teaching about the principles of seed and growth, and specifically how the mystery of the kingdom of God works. How does the kingdom of God first uh, germinate? How does it then continue to grow? And how will it expand to fill all the earth? And so we will turn to verse 26, and we will examine these two parables each in turn. Verse 26, Jesus also said, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. Now here, Jesus is revealing the mysterious principle of how the kingdom of God grows, seemingly all by itself. Now, let me ask you, of all of the things in life, how many of them happen all by themselves, or all by itself? Can you think of anything else that just happens automatically, as it were? You know, I'm sure we could spend a little bit of time thinking about it, right? The, the microwave, for instance, is pretty automatic, but you've still got to put the things in there and, and punch the buttons, right? Like, there's, there's still that. There's maybe a few other examples we could think of, but let me just give you a little example to contrast what a farmer does versus what almost virtually everyone else does. Now, let's take a builder, for instance. Someone who's a contractor who builds houses, now, if they, let's say, made the blueprint, then they go out and buy all of the building materials and all the supplies that they will need to build the entire house, then they take them to the building site and pile them all up on the ground right where they want the house to be built. But then what would happen if rather than getting to work, the builders then just sat down at the work site, you know, grabbed a cup of coffee, sipped it back and just watched and waited for the house to build itself. What would happen? Nothing, right? Absolutely nothing would happen. And no matter how long they waited or how much they cheered on those building supplies, come on, start assembling yourself, build up, grow up into a house, it's not going to happen, is it? 
The ground's not automatically going to dig itself up and, you know, pour a foundation. That's not going to happen. The, the walls, are they just going to frame themselves up? You know, the two-by-fours, are, are the materials going to begin, you know, descending on top and finally the rafters just climb their way up onto and put themselves in place? Or the shingles then just, you know, somehow fly up in the wind and just go in perfect rows along the top? No, none of that is going to happen. It just doesn't work that way. But now we come back to the seed. Because in stark contrast, that's almost exactly how growing crops works. Now, let's take a quick poll here this morning. Don't be shy, okay? Everyone's got to participate here. By show of hands, how many uh, or who of you grew up on a farm? Show of hands here. Okay, wow, we've got a very good representation of farmers here. Or at least you grew up on a farm. Now, let's, I, I want to keep going here. Who of you has ever planted a garden or even helped plant a garden? Okay, we're getting to, I think, probably everyone. And I was going to just, you know, one last one to make sure we got everyone. Who has ever planted a seed of any kind, even if it was just that little cup of soil in a paper cup when you were a kid? You know, in kindergarten, you pushed the little bean in there. Theodore did that this year. And man, I even transplanted it into the garden because it grew so big. I was like, that is a fantastic bean plant you grew there, Theodore. You know, Jack and the Beanstalk almost. It was a great bean plant that he grew. But what did Theo do? Well, he put some soil in a cup and he pushed the bean seed in and he watered it once in a while. That's it. That's all. But the bean grew itself. And this comes, us, comes back to the principle that Jesus is teaching on. Who of you has ever made a seed germinate, grow up into a plant, then bloom, and finally produce more seed? Who of you has ever made the plant do that? Directly, that you initiated each of those steps, that you made the plant do that. None of us. That's not how plants work, is it? No one can do that. And that's because both the necessary information which is incredible when you stop and consider all of the information contained within the tiniest seed is already there to do all of that. It doesn't need more programming. It's all pre-programmed. It's all in it. Then on top of that, all of the necessary power is already contained within the tiniest of seeds to do all of that. It's incredible because that plant, no matter how small the seed, will grow up seemingly to us all by itself. Now, the only things, of course, the farmer has to contribute, or the gardener, the only thing we contribute to this process is perhaps to prepare the soil, you know, maybe till it up a little bit. Um, of course, we need to plant the seed into the ground. We then, if, if we really want to make sure it does well, we'll, we'll water the seed, though if it's outdoors, the sky will provide rain as well. But if we want to water the seed to make sure it's consistent, And then perhaps we may even go a step further to uh, remove the weeds from the competition around our, our growing plants. But that's it. Those are the only things we can contribute to this process. Because one of the things we don't do is we don't go out into the fields with the various parts of the wheat stalk And then the head and then the the full kernels, we don't go out there with the components and start gluing them together like an arts and crafts project, do we? Right? That's not how it works. 
All we have to do is once we have done our part, is unlike that construction worker, we can grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and just watch it happen. Now, in that process of watching it happen, this requires both patience and faith. Faith that the seed is going to do what we hope it is going to do, what it is designed to do, though we cannot control every step of the process. So in the same way, Jesus says, this is the basic operating principle of how the kingdom of God grows. For just as the farmer, the sower, goes out and scatters the seed everywhere, then night and day, whether he sleeps or whether he gets up, all by itself, the seed will germinate. It will sprout. It will grow, though he does not know how. So too, we as disciples of Jesus Christ, in this parallel, we are called to scatter the seed of God's word. We do this in a variety of ways, but at the heart of it is that we are seeking to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, that core message of the gospel, that we are sinners, but that God has intervened because of his love. That though we deserve wrath for our sin, Jesus came and took the wrath of God upon himself on the cross. He died in our place so that we could be forgiven. He rose from the grave. And so too, we who die in Christ will raise, be raised with him. This is the message of the gospel that we seek to scatter in a variety of ways. Now, as we do this, with whoever we can, wherever we can, we saw that a couple of weeks ago, don't worry so much about the soil conditions. Just scatter the seed because we never know where it may grow. And so as we do this, there are things we can contribute to the process. We can help, in a sense, water that gospel seed with acts of love and showing love to the person through prayer that we pray for the individual who has received the seed of the word. But here is the same as for the farmer. Ultimately, we cannot make that seed grow. Not one of us can force the seed of the word to grow up in someone's life. That mysterious, that mysterious part of the process is solely a work of God through the Holy Spirit. For it is he who ministers within the heart, bringing first conviction of sin and then enlightenment to understand this truth that's being presented, that it is indeed true, that it does in fact apply to you. And as the Spirit ministers... He is the one who brings about that growth on the inside as that seed of the word germinates, takes root, puts down roots, and grows up into faith. And so we see this principle also at work. The Apostle Paul uses the same analogy in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6, where he wrote, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So we plant the seed by sharing the gospel with someone. We explain to them how they can escape from the empty life of slavery to sin. How they can receive forgiveness, freedom, and new life in Christ. But then, perhaps having done our part, someone else, another believer, comes along and they water that seed with encouragement, with other words of truth, with acts of love. And then still another Christian comes along and, in a sense, fertilizes it with, with prayer. That God and the Spirit would bring life out of this seed. But then only God himself, by the power of the Spirit, can cause that seed to germinate within the person's heart, sprout into faith, 
and to grow up into maturity where in the end it too will produce a harvest multiplying itself over again. Therefore, we must remember that in this process we have a part to play, but we are completely dependent on the power of God's Spirit, that it's according to His timing and not our own when the seed will grow. I read just this past week as I was studying for this that uh, when they were digging up some of the ancient tombs in Egypt, uh, they uncovered one tomb that they've been able to date back of an Egyptian pharaoh 3,000 years old. And in there, there were fully, uh, uh, in one piece still, pottery which contained various types of seeds of the sort that they grow in Egypt. And so finding these three, you know, dated back at least 3,000-year-old seeds, someone had the idea of just doing a little experiment. Will these seeds still grow? And so they took these 3,000-year-old ancient seeds, they put them in the right soil conditions, and incredibly, they grew. Ancient seed could still grow. Why? Why can they still do that when they've lain dormant for so long? Well, the reason is because no matter how long they lay dormant, those seeds, each of them, still contain both the necessary information and power that once it's planted into the right soil conditions, it will still grow. And so in the exact same way, God's word contains within it both the necessary information and the power that no matter how long it takes, when that seed finds the right soil conditions, Within a person's heart, by the inner work of the Holy Spirit, it will come to life, seemingly, to our eyes, all by itself. Listen to more of what the Scripture says about its power as it works within a life, the seed of God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 says, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. Then Isaiah 50, 55, 10 and 11 says, The Lord says, as the rain and snow comes down from heaven and does not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Isn't this an incredible promise that God says, my, my word which goes out from my mouth will not return to me empty. It's going to do that which I've sent it to do, that which I have deemed it will do. And so as we remember that this seed of God's word, as we spread it out, sometimes we underestimate its power because we think it depends on us. We think, ah, oh, but I'm so weak. I don't have any power. What, what difference can I make in someone's life? But we're looking at the wrong thing. It's not about our power. It's about God's power and what he has designed his word to accomplish. And so remember, his word, it is powerful. Yes, its germination and growth is mysterious. And its growth slow, sometimes too slow for our liking. But God promises it will accomplish the work for which he sent it. All of this means for us is good news. Because it takes the pressure off in a lot of ways. Yes, we have a part to play. God has called us to do it. 
But as we are doing this work, remember, what God calls the sower to do is the part that he has called us to do. Not change hearts, but simply sow the seed of the word. So this means we should be persistent in that, because we never know how long it might take. We might say, yeah, I've been scattering seed for years now, and I'm not seeing any results. But remember, God knows when those results will happen. So be persistent. Then be patient, even as we see the the seed of the word taking root in people's lives, and we see that growth beginning to happen, but maybe it's really slow, or it seems to be getting stunted along the way. But remember, again, God is in charge of that process. Yes, we can contribute with encouragement and love and prayer, but God ultimately is the one working in the heart and the soul of each individual. And so we must trust God as he works, even and especially when we can't see it yet. Psalm 126, verses 5 and 6 says, Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. Now, there are many, and some of you here today, who have had that experience of sowing with tears. Sowing with a heaviness, because the person you're seeking to share this word with doesn't seem to be interested. Perhaps some of them are even hostile, and some of them could be very close to you. Children or close relatives, friends, siblings parents. And there's a heaviness you feel that, are they ever going to receive this word? Will it ever take? And we we weep over this seed sometimes, but God's word recognizes that and says, do it, but, but do it with faith. Do it with hope that though there might be tears today, in the end, there is going to be such joy as we bring in the harvest. And so we do it in faith that God will bring it about in his timing. A real-life example of this is demonstrated in the life of a young man named Hudson Taylor. Hudson had been raised in a godly home by devoted Christian parents. His father, James, was an evangelistic preacher, and his mother was known as a devoted prayer warrior. And so, from his very earliest memories from childhood, he had consistently been taught the gospel. He knew all about Jesus Christ, the message of the gospel, and, and had been in church Almost every day of the week, it seemed like to him. And so, despite all of this and this Christian upbringing, at 15 years of age, Hudson had not yet made a decision for Christ. Despite all of that, being immersed in it from the cradle, he still had not put his faith in Jesus as his Savior. The word lay dormant within him. It had been saturated over him his entire life from head to toe. It was like he was raised in a grain bin. But still, it had not taken in his heart. Then at 15, partly due to the influence of some co-workers, these co-workers espoused a very worldly outlook on life. And partly from their influence, young Hudson came to the conclusion that there was no God to whom he must ultimately answer, and so he could live his life however he wanted to without consequence. Soon Hudson's behavior began to change, And he became increasingly belligerent and rebellious towards both his parents and their Christian faith. His father, not aware of the spiritual struggle raging within Hudson, began to become irritated at his son's moodiness. His mother, however, was much more sensitive to her son's inner struggles. 
And so she began to pray more earnestly for his spiritual welfare. Well, some time later, about a month after Hudson's 17th birthday, he had an afternoon free from responsibility and he found himself looking for something to pass the time. And so he spotted a small basket of pamphlets in the parlor of their home. Searching through them, he found a gospel tract that looked interesting. So he picked it up and thought to himself, he knew all about these tracts, that there will be an interesting story at the beginning and, of course, a sermon at the close. I will take the former and leave the latter for those who care for that sort of thing. He just wanted the story. And so he started to read with, in his words, an utterly unconcerned state of mind about his spiritual condition or his relationship with the Lord. Unbeknownst to him, at that very moment, his mother was kneeling in prayer on his behalf, pleading with God for her son's salvation. You see, she had gone to visit her sister some 50 miles away, and that afternoon had found herself with little to do. After dinner, she went to her room where she was now determined to use that afternoon's time to pray for her son's salvation as, as devotedly and as, as, as passionately as she could. And she even said to the Lord, I'm not going to get off my knees until you give me assurance that my son shall be saved. And so as she fervently prayed, Hudson, meanwhile, was casually reading about a coal miner who was dying of tuberculosis. In the story, some Christians visited him in his hospital bed. They shared with him the gospel, and the miner was struck by the Bible's teaching that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. When the dying man was told about Christ's cry of, It is finished from the cross, suddenly he comprehended its significance with regard to the complete provision that had been made for his own salvation. And so that very day, the miner asked God to forgive his sins and put his faith in Christ. And as it turned out, he died the very next day. And as Hudson further pondered this declaration of Jesus from the cross, why would it have such an effect on this miner? It is finished. What's the big deal? And immediately the answer leapt into his mind. A full and perfect atonement and satisfaction for sin. The debt was paid by the substitute. Christ died for my sins. Then came the further thought. If the whole work was finished and the whole debt paid in full, what is left for me to do? Hudson later wrote of that moment. And with this, the light bulb went on in my mind. And with joyful conviction, it flashed into my soul by the Spirit. There was nothing in the world left for me to do but to fall to my knees and accept this Savior and his salvation and praise him forevermore. And so right then and there, 17-year-old Hudson knelt down and he put his faith in Christ. Two weeks later, Hudson's mother returned home. He greeted her at the door exclaiming, Mother, I have such good news for you. To which she replied, I know, my boy. She smiled, threw her arms around his neck and said, I've been rejoicing in this news for two weeks. Seeing her son's surprise and perplexity, she continued, It was not from any human source that I learned this. I knew the very hour you were converted, for you see, I spent the entire afternoon in prayer for you, until finally the Lord assured my heart that my wayward son had come into the fold. Now, as some of you already know, Hudson Taylor went on to become one of the greatest pioneering missionaries to China. 
And through his nearly 50-year mission in China, Hudson became known for his driving passion that as many people as possible needed to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. For as he often quoted Romans 10, 14 to 15, which says, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This was his rallying cry. Yet in the early years of his missionary work in China, Hudson grew troubled that people back home in England seemed to have little interest in China and were callous towards their need for Christ. In one letter back home, he wrote to them, How can all the Christians in England sit still with folded arms while these multitudes in China are perishing, perishing for lack of knowledge, for lack of knowledge which England possesses so richly? Quickly, Hudson became convinced that many more missionaries were needed to evangelize the vast interior of China. And so he founded the China Inland Mission, which inspired and recruited over the years hundreds of more missionaries, which during his lifetime resulted in leading thousands of people to faith in Christ and many countless more following his death in 1905. The mission he founded has continued on to this very day. Yet all of Hudson's Legacy, all of that fruit of that harvest that I just told you about, all of it can be traced back to faithful Christian parents who diligently planted the seed of God's word in his life as a young child. And though that seed lay dormant for a season, helped along by his mother's dedicated watering of that seed in prayer, by the mysterious inner work of the Holy Spirit, it finally came to life which not only produced Hudson Taylor's salvation, but was further used by God in a mighty way to help broadcast the gospel seed further and further than could have been imagined, bringing about a great harvest of souls in China. This part of Hudson Taylor's story also helps demonstrate Jesus' second parable for us in Mark 40, pardon me, Mark 4, verses 30 to 32. There the kingdom of God is compared to a mustard seed, That though it starts out as the smallest of seeds, yet once it is full grown, it becomes the largest of all garden plants. Now, the sort of mustard that we have growing here in Canada uh, doesn't quite come to mind with what Jesus was talking about. Because the sort of mustard plant that Jesus was talking about would grow up to 10 feet tall and have a very thick, woody stem with lots of branches branching out at the top, which he says the birds could even come and land in for shade. And so this mustard seed, this mustard plant Jesus referred to that grows in Israel is known to be one of the hardiest of all of the garden plants because it's known that if you even chop it down, it will regrow up from its roots. Another analogy of the kingdom, that no matter what you do to God's kingdom and try to hack it down as as countless people have done through the ages and even whole governments as we've seen in in under the era of communist Russia when the Soviets tried to eradicate it from every corner of society, they chopped it down, yet it grew up from its roots. And so we see that the kingdom is like this mustard plant. It's so hardy that though it starts from the tiniest of seeds, it grows up into great things that cannot be destroyed. And so we see with his kingdom, 
From small beginnings come great things. And so too, from a tiny baby, born in a Bethlehem stable, laid in a manger, humble beginnings, he sits now at the right hand of the Father in great glory, with all authority having been handed to him, that heaven and earth are beneath his feet. From small beginnings come great things. And so too for each of us, that kingdom of God begins like a tiny seed planted in our hearts. At first there's nothing impressive about it. It might even just lie there for a long time. But once that seed takes root and it begins to grow in faith, our lives become increasingly filled with the love of God. And then it's watered by the Spirit. And it grows within us every time we show love to our neighbor. Every time we care for those in need, we visit the sick, we do the things that Jesus has commanded us to do, it grows and it grows. And this is, in fact, the very same way that Jesus continued to grow the kingdom of God from only 12 relatively uneducated disciples. Most of them, half of them, fishermen, tax collector, a farmer, a zealot. There were all sort of a motley crew of those initial 12. Not much to brag about. But then on Pentecost, the Spirit was poured out on each one of them. Tongues of fire. Peter preaches with new power. 3,000 were added to the kingdom that day. And from there it continued to grow. And it spread and it grew and it spread through the centuries. Spreading now to every continent, to every nation. And will eventually, the word says, reach every last people group on earth. That every tongue... Every spoken language on earth will receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that when this last age of the earth finally wraps up and comes to an end, John's vision recorded in Revelation 7 verses 9 and 10 will be fulfilled. John says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. Praise God, my friends. Praise God that by his mercy and his grace, as we look at that picture, we can see ourselves in it. That vast multitude that no one could count that Danny Greening is in that multitude. I can see myself there. My friends, do you see yourself in that vast multitude, standing before God's throne, crying out, Worthy, worthy is the Lamb. What a picture of the kingdom that is coming, my friends. Yes, there's times we look around and we wonder, Wow, this kingdom thing is hard work. And sometimes it feels like we're taking a beating. Because there's still an enemy at work in this world. He's seeking to chop it down at every chance he gets. But my friends, God's word is not returning void. It is doing the work for which it was sent. And that includes us. And that includes us just like Hudson Taylor. One boy, 17 years old, finally saying, yes, Jesus, I believe. And look what God can do with one life. One yielded seed in his hand. He can do great things from small beginnings. And so remember, just as for our Lord Jesus, 
Just as for his disciples, the Apostle Paul or Hudson Taylor, none of this comes about quickly by human standards. None of it comes about certainly without struggle or effort or opposition. For those things there are many. And this is why Hudson once asked, was asked, what is the most important quality for a missionary? And well into his missionary life, he replied, three things are most important qualifications for a missionary. Number one is patience. Number two is patience. And number three is patience. (laughs) Any of you resonate with that? The call for patience in the life of a disciple. Jesus concludes his parable in Mark 4.29 like this. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. This is what we want, right? We always want the harvest. But there is a process that must come first. And there is no mistaking that Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. He is the one that ultimately wields the sickle. For in the end, it is he alone who knows the hearts and soul of each person. It is he who will determine who is the grain, the good grain, that will be welcomed into his Father's eternal kingdom. And who it is that is the chaff, that will blow away and be burned. As Galatians 6, 7, and 9 says, a man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. So you see, in the end, every last one of us is sowing something with our lives. Whether it is a seed that only grows to please please our selfish flesh, or whether it is a seed that grows up to please the Lord. Because either way, in the end, when the sickle comes, we will reap what we have sown. So in closing, let me ask you, what kind of seed are you sowing? Are you sowing for yourself, or are you sowing for the kingdom of heaven? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your explanation of the mystery of how your kingdom grows, both personally within us and how you grow in the world. And Lord, I can't help but look back on my own life and just marvel and wonder at how you have worked within me, and why. And yet I thank you, though I do not understand it. It is by your grace. So I thank you for this work within me. And as I look out over this congregation, Lord, I thank you for your good work that I can see within each one. And so, Lord, I pray by your Spirit, would you water that good work? Would you water that plant of faith by your Spirit even now? And Lord, where there are those of us, maybe even now, who recognize, like young Hudson, that we have not yet yielded, I pray, O Lord, grant the grace and the faith in this moment to recognize that, yes, it is a finished work, and all I can do is receive it in faith. And so, Father, may your will be done in our lives, and we pray further that we would go out, having received this word, that as your disciples, we will scatter it abroad. Wherever we go, may it go forth from our lives. May we water it diligently. May we seek to be those 
who would be those who care deeply about the spiritual well-being of others, that, Lord, others can come to know you and this wonderful salvation so that they too can be seen in that vast multitude around your throne one day in glory. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.